0: Father, I pray that your word now would comfort and strengthen, would uh, do a powerful work of your Holy Spirit for your people as we uh, wait and cry, come thou long-expected Jesus. Pray this in his name, amen. Please take a seat. In the Lord of the Rings movies, Not the books, if you're a purist. Um, We first get to meet two of our main characters, the hobbit Frodo and the wizard Gandalf, as they are meeting each other after a very long absence. And as Gandalf pulls up at his cart, Frodo runs up to him and says, you're late. And Gandalf gives this lovely little platitude that a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. And about 20 minutes later in the movie, Gandalf is made very late. He can't keep his word. He gets locked in a tower. He can't come help his friends. And it turns out that what he wants to be true isn't necessarily true all the time. And many of us might know what that feels like. We're, we might be good planners. We might be organized people, trustworthy. We are known by others as someone who arrives precisely when they mean to. But even for the most honest and organized people here, we know that we are victims of elements that are often beyond our control. Flat tires and snowstorms and sudden illnesses are things which make reliable and trustworthy people unable to keep their word about their plans. That is not true about God, is it? Not only is God perfectly trustworthy, but God is in perfect control. So there is nothing in the world which can stop God from keeping his plans exactly the way that he promises he would. Everything takes place, the exact place, the exact time, and the exact way that God says it will. Now that doesn't change the fact that waiting for God to act Can often make us anxious, fraught, despairing, confused, at times even doubtful about whether or not God will keep his word. Waiting is hard. Kids, who loves waiting? Have your parents ever told you, kids, have your parents ever told you that you only have to wait just a little bit and then you end up having to wait? Forever. Has that ever happened where your parents are like, "Just just five minutes, just one phone call. We're about to leave church. I just need to talk to one person." and then they make you wait for literally five million hours. Kids, has that happened to you? That used to happen to me all the time. That's why I never do it to my children. The hardest waiting is the waiting that you thought wouldn't have to happen. When you thought something would happen soon and it is delayed. That is often how God's people felt. Think of the cry of the psalmist that we heard this morning that you hear often in scripture How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? That has been the cry of God's people many times in their history, in Egypt, in the wilderness, under wicked kings, out in exile. In all of these times of waiting, we know what God was doing. Exodus says God heard, God saw, God knew, God was aware. Not just of the pain they were experiencing, but he knew exactly when he would come to their rescue. But in the midst of this history full of waiting and fulfillment and waiting and fulfillment, this central waiting began to take shape. People began waiting not just to be relieved of the struggles of the moment, but when is God going to bring ultimate relief? When is God going to bring about his ultimate salvation to end this cycle of needing to be rescued and getting rescued over and over? Could that end? Could God forever deal with the sinful hearts of his enemies? Could God forever deal with the sinful hearts of his people so they they wouldn't constantly find themselves in these situations of needing rescuing? Could real, lasting peace come? The Old Testament, of course, gradually reveals that there is an answer to that waiting. There is a greater salvation coming, and it's going to come through an anointed king who will deliver God's people, who will bring peace on earth. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 that the salvation of Jesus was God's ultimate plan. And that it was always God's plan from the beginning of history. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10. In Him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God has always had one plan and one purpose that he set forth to take place in the fullness of time. Before the world was made, God knew his purposes in it. And that plan was for Christ for Christ to bring salvation to his people. And every part of that plan came about in the exact perfect moment. You can also see in those verses in Ephesians, even though all of those events were fixed by God's will and came about in the perfect moment, that did not mean that we knew when each event would take place. Paul says God has been slowly making known to us the mystery of his will. We are not meant to see And know the plan in all of its timing like God does. That is not for us to know. Now even though we don't perfectly know the plan, we are always meant to trust that God does. This was God's assurance for those who waited for Jesus first appearing. And it is still our assurance as we wait for him to come back. That's our first point this morning. The time of Christ's appearing is fixed in the eternal plan of God. In Galatians, Galatians chapter four, Paul uses the phrase again in the fullness of time. Just a couple pages before Ephesians one there. Things happening exactly as God determines. And here in Galatians, it refers to the first coming of Jesus. Galatians four, verses four and five. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. When Paul uses that phrase, the fullness of time, he doesn't just mean the exact moment that God planned when something would happen. More than that, he means the perfect moment within God's plan of history when something must happen. This is the exact moment in the plan. The time has become full for Christ to come. All prior events took place as necessary to lead history to the perfect moment when this would take place. God never wastes a moment of history. God never wastes a single moment. God has never been shredding water, fighting his time, stalling. Every event, every person within the history of God's people had its place in God's purpose to bring about his salvation through Jesus. This is very evident all through the Old Testament. Jesus' coming was laid out in promises. It was unfolded in prophecies. Men arose who became types of the savior God's people needed. Other men arose who became types of what God's people needed to get saved from. The great saving events in the history of God's people all explained how God would deliver them through Christ. The Exodus, saving through the judges, through the kings. All of this was done so that when the Messiah appeared, there would be a people truly waiting for him, and they would know enough to receive him and trust that he had come exactly as God planned. Now, in Galatians 4, God points out three things about Jesus' birth, about his first coming. That happened exactly according to God's plan. These three things depended on all the prior history taking place so that the coming of the Messiah would be perfect. First, Paul says God sent forth his son. History made necessary that the Messiah who would come to save God's people would be God's own son, would be God himself. This was largely revealed... By the failure of even the best human kings who had come before, David, Hezekiah, Josiah, each of them fell short to ultimately bring lasting salvation to God's people because each of them needed a savior just as much as the people they led. They had their own sin to deal with. They knew death because of that. Moses, Joshua, Gideon, none of them could bring lasting peace to God's people. None of them could bring real, lasting rest. None of them could reverse the curse of Adam. So the history of God's people showed that God would have to bring about this deliverance himself. And so you get those wonderful promises of the prophets saying that the one who comes, as Isaiah says, is going to be mighty God. God is going to save his people himself. But Isaiah also promises that the Messiah will be born to us, born to God's people, born to humanity. God's plan for the fullness of time, secondly, was that the Messiah would be born of a woman. Christ had to be human. In Genesis 3.15, right back at the beginning of this history, there was a promise that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the snake. Just as a man, Adam, had brought sin into the world, a man, Jesus, would bring salvation from sin. God's covenants directed his people to look at the human family through which salvation would come. Look at the family of Abraham. Look at the tribe of Judah. Look at the lineage of David. It is pointing at the human family from which salvation would come to the world. And in the promise God makes to David, that promise that the Savior would be God and would be man comes together, David is told his son will be treated as God's own son. Both true man and true God. So the fullness of time increasingly revealed the necessity of a Savior who is God and man. Thirdly, Paul says that in the fullness of time, in the exact moment God planned, the Messiah would be born under the law. Before Jesus' birth, the giving of the law at Sinai was perhaps the most important event in Israel's history. Now, we know that the law was given to govern the nation state of Israel as they waited for Christ to come, but Paul tells us that perhaps the central purpose of the law was to prepare God's people for Jesus' salvation. The law revealed that God's standard of righteousness, not just to be someone who wasn't thrown in jail, but to actually be someone who had satisfied everything God demanded, was nothing short of perfection. It showed then that there was no way that any human, not you or me or David or Moses or Noah, could ultimately save themselves by keeping God's standard. But if that's true, if the law points to God's perfect character, it points to our failure, then it points to our need of a Savior. Teens, you'll remember this in our catechism question since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? that we may know the holy nature and will of God and the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts and thus our need for a savior. The law unfolded an idea which has been present right since the fall into sin, that there was salvation offered to those who could not keep the law and that salvation was offered through sacrifice and substitution. God gave his people to show them sacrifices sacrifices to show so that even when they fell short of his standard, they could be spared punishment by placing that punishment onto a substitute. He commanded them to bring animals without spot or blemish to teach them that the goal was to bring a substitute that didn't have its own cleansing, which was necessary. It was already clean. It didn't merit its own punishment. It wasn't impure. So it could take that from the one bringing the sacrifice a substitute could bear the sins of another because it didn't have to bear punishment for its own sake. Now, of course, if it's an animal that you're sacrificing, then all of this is just symbolic. An animal cannot perfectly represent a person in a sacrifice. But all of these sacrifices of the law looked forward to the coming of a real and perfect substitute who would come who really would have no spot or blemish, would really have no punishment of his own that he needed to bear, so that he could bear the punishment that we, according to God's law, rightfully deserved. And so Jesus had to be born under the law. He had to be born subject to it so that he could achieve a perfect record according to it, so that he could be a spotless sacrifice, so that as the law laid out, he could bear that for us. So then as the son of God born of a woman born under the law Paul says Jesus could redeem those under the law so that we could receive adoption as sons. He needed his perfect record. He needed to be a man to be our substitute. He needed to be God so that he was able to save us and was powerful to break the chains of death and rise from the grave No single moment before Jesus came was wasted. Every moment was necessary to lay the foundation for that salvation and to prepare God's people for that salvation so that when it came, they would be waiting for it. They would be delighted in it. They would trust in it. The giving of the law, the promises, the covenants, all of those types and shadows prepared God's people so that when they called out, How long, O Lord? they would get a glimpse of God's answer in the fullness of time. When everything has transpired exactly as I have laid it out, my salvation is coming. See me working towards it now. Now this Advent, we are thinking about how Jesus' first coming helps us wait for his second appearing. We still cry out, how long, O Lord, don't we? Now we say it, come, Lord Jesus. And sometimes within that cry, there is that hidden question. How long, O Lord? How long until he comes? We see the persistence of sin in this world. We see it in our own hearts. We feel the curse and the suffering and the lack of peace. And we wonder why God has not yet kept his promises. Why has Jesus not yet come back? Surely he would have established his kingdom over all creation by now. But God's reminder to us is the same as his reminder to that Old Testament people in the fullness of time. Looking back at Ephesians 1, Paul says, Remember, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Paul is speaking of God's full plan for history, but he's referring to its final plan consummation to that moment when everything is united under Christ when all creation is under him as king the final goal of history and so until that moment arrives everything is proceeding according to plan so that that moment can come in the fullness of time but we and we still don't know that moment But not knowing it does not change its certainty. It does not change the perfection of the plan that God is unfolding. That's our second point. Not knowing the day of Christ's appearing does not change its certainty. The Thessalonian church knew what it was like to cry out, come Lord Jesus. They suffered much persecution. And they longed for Jesus to come back and end that suffering. But Paul, in his letters to them, reminds them That it is in fact God's intention that they not know the hour when Jesus returns. 1 Thessalonians 5 1 and 2. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord, the final judgment that God brings about when his eternal kingdom is established. Paul tells the Thessalonians, they do not know when that day will be. And what's more, God does not want them to know. It will come like a thief in the night. It is not our business to know that day. And it is not our business to guess. So Paul says there is no need for people to be writing on the times and seasons of when that day will take place. You need nothing written to you about times or seasons, Paul says. Don't waste your ink on that. And he says this because men were trying. They were writing, they were spilling much ink on when the times and seasons would be. They were trying to teach the Thessalonians this is when it's going to happen, this is when the day of the Lord will be, and that was leading them astray. Similarly, in 2 Thessalonians 2 1 and 2, Paul says, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Paul is very clear. There is a wrong way to wait for Jesus. And the wrong way is to be swayed by men who are always interpreting the times and the seasons to tell you when Jesus will come back. Since the day of the Thessalonians, in every era, men have been telling people they know the day of Christ's return. Usually, it's coming up immediately. They're trying to line up times and seasons and prophecies to tell you they know. They know the date of the return of the Lord. They make it seem like they love Scripture because, of course, they're always using the Bible, but they are not using it the way that God gave it to us. They are pulling it together and pasting it together in different ways, using numbers and symbols and hidden codes and superstitions and things that, sh- that are not clear. And Paul says, those teachers, they shake you. They alarm you. They get a rise out of you. That is how they profit from us. But Paul says we do not need to heed them. Brothers and sisters, among our own congregation, there will be different readings about passages in Revelation, the prophets. We can have good Christian disagreements about the events surrounding the return of Jesus. We might disagree about what signs are going to precede his coming, what the earth will be like when he comes, what events will take place. But Paul wants us to remember, whatever those signs are, what we see in Revelation, the obsession of knowing the date itself is not meant to be our preoccupation. Do not try and guess the time. Do not try and guess the season. And do not be shaken by those who claim to have special knowledge about Jesus' return. Now Peter adds to this another exhortation. Do not be shaken by those who say that because he has not returned yet, that he is not coming at all. That's 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Peter says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring you up that the heavens existed long ago, that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, that by means of these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The recipients of Peter's letters were also dealing with significant persecution and opposition. And one of the things that they were being told was that as more time was put between them and the second coming of Jesus, it seemed pretty clear that he was not going to return at all. Many people are still shaken by this accusation, as even more time is put between us and the coming of Jesus. More and more people arise who look at their own daily experience and say it's quite clear that the Bible, getting more and more ancient, doesn't give us an accurate interpretation of the world. If God were to keep his promises that Jesus would return, surely he'd have done so by now. Surely he would have proven to me who he was and what he was about. We hear that from contemporary humanists, atheists, those who would sometimes call themselves Christians, that the Bible is not reliable. It's even false that history is clearly governed by blind chance and natural processes that function on their own without God. Peter had heard this same accusation right after Jesus had ascended. They said, All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. God should have proven himself to me by now. Peter assures his readers, none of this changes the fact that God's promises will take place, and they will take place exactly in the moment that he has planned. The plan has not changed. He's not stalling. He is not treading water. He's not biding his time. Just like with Jesus' first coming, there is a reason that he's waiting for an exact moment in the future for that planned event to take place. God is still not wasting a single moment of history. So if Jesus' second coming really is planned for the fullness of time, what events are we waiting to take place now? Why has he waited so long? Peter says, Peter says, is because God is patient and because he is gracious. Brothers and sisters, what would have happened if Jesus returned a hundred years ago? (laughs) No one here would have been a part of his kingdom. Some of you wouldn't have been a part of his kingdom if he returned five years ago. Thank God he has waited until now. We do not know how much longer he waits to be patient, bearing with sin and scoffing, so that more people would come into his kingdom. Maybe he waits until tomorrow because he waits for you. Because he has been patient for you. Because he has waited through all of your scoffing, through your feet dragging, through your lack of commitment, through the sin that distracts you, he has waited for you. He's waited for you to come into his kingdom. And that is the reason that he delays. So it would be good if Jesus chose to return today. It would be good. It would be good if he chose to return tomorrow. But it would be good if he waited 10 years. It would be good if he waited 10,000 years. We do not know the day, and it will come like a thief. Peter says a thousand years is like a day to God. He does not feel that impatience about his coming the way that we do. So do not assume that God must be in a rush. That the state of this world will force his hand. We do not know the date. We cannot guess the date. We are meant to celebrate his continued grace and patience with every moment he bears with us so that he might save even more of us. So we know how not to wait. Don't be distracted by men trying to interpret the times and seasons. Don't be fooled by those who alarm you. Don't give in to scoffers who twist his patience into inactivity that he will not, and say he will not return. Peter goes on in his letter to tell us how to wait. Verses 11 to 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of our God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What are we to do if that hour is fixed and certain, but we don't know when it is? It's our third point. Wait for Christ appearing with patient perseverance, and hope. If God is able to be patient with his judgment, God is able to be patient through so much sin and rebellion against him, we also can wait patiently until he comes. And this waiting is characterized with hope for what will come about when he does return, and it's characterized with perseverance, which Peter calls hastening the day. First, we wait with hope. Paul says in Romans 8, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then he goes on to say, we do groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Hope is necessary for Christian patience. Our hope reminds us that even our suffering and our groaning is a part of God's perfect plan for history. And that plan for history will absolutely, in the fullness of time, culminate in the return of Jesus, the judgment of sin, the remaking of creation, the restoration of creation, the renewal of our bodies, lasting peace, one of the ways that you hold on to that hope is by remembering all the promises that he kept in the past. That's what we're doing right now at Advent. We are looking back at all the promises made and all the promises kept. We're looking back at those who had their patience rewarded, the patient slaves in Egypt. At one point, there were thousands of people waiting for when God would free them from slavery. The patience of those exiles longing to return to Jerusalem. The patience of Anna and Simeon and people like them, who were assured that the day would come when the Messiah would arrive, all of those people had their hope rewarded. And we will surely one day have our hope rewarded when God's promises come true. But this is not a patience that writes off the present. This isn't a hope that looks for a bunker to hide in until Jesus comes back and makes everything right. Our confident, hopeful patience allows us to persevere. Peter says that even as we don't know the day of Jesus' return, we can hasten it. This doesn't mean that we change God's plan. But we know the reason he has not come yet. And that reason is that more people would hear the gospel and believe. That is what he waits for. That is what must take place before the fullness of time comes. And we know the way that he's promised to bring that about. That plan includes us who have been saved. We have a commission from Jesus right before he went up to the Father. He told his church, here's the business for you to be about until I come back. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, until I come again, Till the end of the age. It is the accomplishment of the Great Commission to its full and final extent. That is what God waits for until Jesus returns. This doesn't invite us to start guessing again, to start doing math, how many nations need to be saved, how many people from each nation counts before Jesus comes back. People have done that before. We don't know the full number of those who will be saved. We cannot know the hour when that work will be finished. But we do know that this is the task before us, and we know that every soul that is pulled out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light brings us one step closer to the final fulfillment of God's commission and the return of Jesus. So friend, what does it mean for us to care about Jesus' second coming? What does it mean for us to care deeply about eschatology? To be meaningfully interested in the return of Christ? It means persevering in sharing the good news. It means working towards the second coming by sharing the gospel, by participating in the discipleship of the church. It means reading the promises of his coming, reading that we have in Revelation, that we have in the prophets, not going beyond them to speculate about the exact moments and times. Instead, see those promises, use them to know what to hope for, to look forward to his return with hope and patience and perseverance, knowing that we have work to do until that time comes. Very well-known teachers like R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, John Piper, Jonathan Edwards, John Calvin, all of them would disagree to one degree or another, about the eschatological events of the Bible. But all of them would stand together in agreement on how we hasten that day. Preach the gospel. And in that, they are united, looking forward to and hastening the coming of Jesus, even as they might disagree about some events and some signs. Let us say together, come Lord Jesus, come thou long expected Jesus, and then let us live with a come Lord Jesus attitude, the way that he taught us to, with bold gospel proclamation, with a love for the growth and discipleship of his church, hastening the day until he comes again. Now today is a church, we are going to enjoy the Lord's Supper together. This itself is a gift given to us to hold on to and wait for in hope the return of Jesus. Paul says this proclaims the Lord's death. It proclaims our faith, proclaims the gospel until he comes again. It looks back on what he's accomplished so that we can hold on to hope for what we wait for. It reminds us that we have sure promises and gathering together to take this helps us to wait patiently to wait hopefully. Reminds us to call others who are not yet a part of this family out of the kingdom of darkness. Come join us at this table. Come, don't be a people in despair, in confusion. Come be a people of hope. Be a part of a people of patience, a people who know what we are waiting for. To that end, I would call you, if you do not yet believe, if you are not yet a part of God's people, if you've not been baptized, if you have not joined with a church that preaches the gospel, then do not take this with us. Look at the people who are waiting and hoping for him to return and repent and believe. Be joined with his people. Be baptized into the body of Christ. Become a member of his church, preaching the gospel, and join us then at this table looking forward to his coming but now I will call us brothers and sisters to participate in this hopeful expectation together bring forward our worship team and our elders let's pray gracious father we thank you for your perfect plan we thank you that it's not a plan that changes that you do not need to scramble or adapt this is your plan for history and everything takes place in the fullness of time we thank you that we can already look back on the birth of Jesus, his coming, his life, his death, his resurrection, and see how that took place perfectly as you planned. And now we can take this supper together to hold on to hope in the perfection of the plan that still is to be completed. You know the day. You know the hour. The plan will be completed. Jesus will return and all things made new. I pray that you would use this time by the power of your spirit to build us up in faith and hope for that day, until Jesus comes. Pray this in his name. Amen.